And do you know you're a child of God today? You know, you say that now because we just sang that song, but if I'd seen you on Thursday and said, tell me who you are, you probably wouldn't have answered the question quite like that. You probably would have found several different categories to draw from, to piece together some kind of answer to the question, who am I? And yet that question is one of the most important questions that anybody can ever answer. We're in a sermon series right now called Worldview in Focus, and we're looking at the eight most important questions in life, and how you answer those questions depends on the worldview with which you see and interpret the world around you. Big questions, important questions like, uh, is there such a thing as truth? Does God exist? If so, then what is he like? Where did we come from? What's wrong with this world? What is the solution to what's wrong with the world? And today we come to that very question of who am I? And I do think that's a massively important question. And out of all those worldview questions that we're talking about, this question of identity, this question of who am I, is probably getting more mileage in today's world's conversation than any other question that's going on out there. What I mean by that is it's this question of identity of who am I that's being talked about probably more so than all the others. Now, the question of who am I and the popular way today of answering that question seems to be the wheels upon which our progressive society is moving forward. And that's not good news. That's not a good thing at all. You see, one way of thinking about who am I, one way of thinking related to identity that is really, really prominent today in our society and across a lot of different worldviews is this thing called critical theory. Some of you have heard the phrase critical race theory. Critical theory is the broader umbrella. Things like critical race theory are subsets of the broader thing that we're talking about today called critical theory. Critical theory is part of this Marxist worldview that really has exploded onto the scene in, in our society in the last couple of years. Two years ago or so, I started to warn our pastors and staff that this is an avalanche that is about to break loose and head in our direction. At that same time, I was teaching our high school students on Wednesday nights, and I began to teach them because I knew of everybody in our church family. It, it's our high school students who were headed to college that were about to collide with this way of thinking in such an incredible sort of way. And, and so, indeed, that's happened. Just two weeks ago, true story, one of those high school students who now is a student at one of our local state universities, she starts sending me screenshots from the slides in one of her classes at her university. And then later she sent me the entire lecture. And my, my day was really made because as she was sending me this, she wrote the word brainwashing. <laughs> and I went, yes, way to go. Because she readily identified this isn't consistent with a biblical worldview. And, and so what I want to do today from that university's own course, that class, I want to take a minute to show you how government schools are teaching your children and your grandchildren to answer one of life's most important questions, the question of who am I? So these are not slides or images we created. These are my screenshots 
from my phone as I watched the lecture. These were put together by a university professor. And here's the first slide that comes up in that lecture. Um, the lesson you can see here is called the cycle of oppression, and beneath that it mentions the word patriarchy. And the reason for that is that this is actually a women's study course, and the idea that they're espousing with patriarchy is that men are oppressors of women. So they're placing that truth in the middle of this particular lesson that they're going through on that day. And as that slide comes up, here's what the professor says. I, I, I wrote it down. These are her words, quote, the cycle of oppression is a self-perpetuating system, which means that one thing contributes to another, contributes to another, and it keeps going in a circle like that forever and ever. She goes on to say, we are all part of it, and we're all contributing to it, whether we want to or not, unless, unless we are actively fighting against it. Now, in, in this way of thinking, actively fighting against the cycle of oppression is what being woke is all about. And I know a lot of you are hearing that word woke, and we, I just want to ask you today to give it a fair hearing because we typically just tend to knee-jerk based upon which person is using the word, whether we you know, align with that person or we don't. But I want us to really walk through that and better understand today what are we talking about when we talk about that. So what is this cycle of oppression. So the professor then put this slide up in her class, and, and this makes perfect sense to me, that the cycle of oppression begins at the top of that cycle with making assumptions about people. And when we make assumptions about people, the next thing that we do is we begin to stereotype people. And from stereotyping people, then we begin to become prejudiced toward certain people or people groups. And from prejudice, then it moves to we begin to discriminate and show discrimination toward others. And because of that discrimination, then that puts in play some type of social power. And then because that social power is now in play, now oppression is a reality for some people or groups of people. Now, I look at that cycle of oppression and I go, I think God hates that. He, he hates cycles of oppression. I look at that, and I think, I hate that. Assumptions and, 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 and stereotyping and, and, and being prejudiced and discriminatory, I think I ought to fight against that. Because I think God does. And I think as followers of Jesus, we should want to fight against cycles of oppression. Well, how do we do that? That's the question. Well, in this worldview, the only way, according to them, that you can fight this cycle of oppression is you have to categorically denounce everybody that's in all these groups, and you have to categorically affirm and celebrate everybody that's in all of these other groups. And if you will denounce all of this and affirm and celebrate all of that, then you're, you're officially woke and you're doing your part to bring an end to the cycle of oppression. I get that. So my next question is, well, as a follower of Jesus, can I do that? Can I be woke? Based upon what they're saying is required for me to be woke. So let's see according to this worldview 
who are all the oppressor groups and who are all the oppressed groups that we need to denounce and affirm and celebrate. So then the professor puts this slide up. This is her slide, my screenshot of it. And here are all the isms that the professor says contribute to the cycle of oppression. Classism, ageism, sexism, racism, heterosexism, homophobia, heterosexism, uh, cissexism, uh, ableism, and then religion, religious oppression. And then you can see in the next column, here's the list of the people who are considered to be privileged because they're a part of these groups. These are the people, a.k.a., who are uh, oppressors. And these are the middle, upper class, the owning people, uh, middle-aged people, adults, masculinity, white people, heterosexuals, cisgender. Some of you are hearing that word cisgender and you don't know what that means because we weren't really talking about that just a few years ago. What cisgender is is that... um, I live out my life in a way that's consistent with the sex that was assigned to me at birth. Well, y'all, I was born in 1974, and they didn't assign sex at birth. They just acknowledged what sex you were. But this is what we do now with this thing called cisgender. So if you're acting in a way that's consistent with the sex that they put on your birth certificate when you were born, you're you're cisgender, okay? Uh, If you're able-bodied, that's this temp or temporarily able-bodied because if you are able-bodied, it could just be temporary. That could change today for some of us. We hope not, but that could happen. And then Christianity. Christianity, according to critical theory, according to this professor's lecture, if you're a Christian, you're an oppressor. You fall into that category. And then here's all the people who are experiencing oppression, the poor, the working, the lower middle, the elder, the young people, the young adults, femininity, people of color, LGBTQ, trans people or gender nonconforming. They're not cisgendered. They are gender nonconforming. People with disabilities and other oppressed groups are the atheists, the agnostics, the Muslims, the pagans, the Hindus, the Jews, the Sikhs, the Buddhists, and so on. Now, here's the deal. The more boxes that you check in the oppressor category, then, then the bigger villain, I guess you could say that you are, the bigger the, the bad person that you may be, and therefore the less moral authority that you would have. In other words, if you check a lot of those boxes in the oppressor category, your voice really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're speaking the truth, but because it's coming out of the mouth of somebody who checks a lot of those boxes, we don't really need to listen to them quite so much. And the more boxes you check in this category, in the oppression category, you get more moral authority. Your voice needs to be heard more. Even if what's coming from your voice happens to be lies, that's okay because your voice matters now more than anybody else's. That whole concept, by the way, I'm telling you this because you'll hear these words, that whole concept is called intersectionality. The more your life intersects with those categories in those columns means that the more it happens in the oppressed group, the bigger your villainhood, intersectionality. The more you intersect with the columns in the other side, the the bigger your victimhood. And and, and by the way, I check all those boxes, man, on the um, privilege and the oppressor side. And here's what's being taught. Here's what's being taught in critical theory. Um, If you aren't against 
all of that and you're not celebrating all of the other category, then you're not a woke person and you don't care about oppression and you're not trying to stop the cycle of oppression. In fact, you're part of the problem because you won't denounce one side and affirm and celebrate the other side. You are part of why this cycle of oppression continues to move forward because you're not woke. So according to this worldview, the only way for me to atone for all of my guilt, at least my guilt by association, the only way that I can be delivered from that perceived guilt is that I I have to go totally woke. I have to denounce all that and affirm and celebrate all of the other. And and until I do that, then I remain in the, the oppressor category. Now, as far as some people are concerned, I'm always going to be one of the bad guys because if you're wondering how I answer the question for myself, I can't ever go woke. I can't. No matter what good I do, my perceived sins in the cycle of oppression are never going to be atoned for or forgiven because as a follower of Jesus Christ, I can't by their standard, embrace wokeism. Because there's things that they're asking me to affirm and to celebrate and to call good that God does not call good. There are things that they're asking me to elevate and to champion and to celebrate that according to God's word, those things are not good. So let me summarize what this course is teaching. And I want to go back to that cycle of oppression that we looked at just a second ago. If we can put that back up there, please. There we go. So there is a cycle. Here's what they're teaching. There's a cycle of oppression in the world that is a result of making assumptions about others, holding to stereotypes about others, being prejudiced toward others, acting in a discriminatory way toward others, and that creates social power, and social power leads to oppression. So according to woke folks, the way to stop the cycle of oppression is to have assumptions about people, to hold to stereotypes about people, to be prejudiced toward others, to act in a discriminatory way toward other people, and that will lead us to a new social power. But according to their own ideas, what's that going to lead to? Just more oppression. See, critical theory, rightly so, they get this right, I think, is that they see the wrong direction we go in when we operate from assumptions about others and stereotypes about others, which can lead to being prejudiced and discriminatory. But here's the crazy thing. Critical theory is built on those very things. You don't solve the terrible evil isms in the world by throwing terrible, evil isms at it. That's not the answer. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream of a society where people were not judged by their outward appearances like the color of their skin. Rather, they were judged by the content of their character. Critical theory is simply plan B for people who failed Martin Luther King Jr.'s character of content standard. Because in critical theory, you don't have to be a person of good character. You don't have to be a good person. All you have to do in critical theory is tell somebody else that they're a bad person. And so now they're the villain and you're the victim 
and that's where you get affirmed and you get a celebrated, and that's how this works. See, the character that Dr. King pointed us to in the year 2022 has now turned into caricatures. That's what's happened. And here, church, is why we got to be aware of critical theory. They claim that this is merely an analytical tool to understand how the world works. In fact, our own Southern Baptist Convention bought that lie in 2019, mainly out of ignorance, I think. But it is not simply an analytical tool to understand how the world works. Here's the danger of it. This is nothing less but a dangerously deceptive and anti-biblical worldview. This is a worldview that is in opposition to what God says in his word. And this is being taught in our government schools. And it's being peddled in our media nonstop. And and here's what grieves me on, on a personal level is that some kids come to this church and they see me as their pastor and they are told by this worldview that you should consider your pastor to be one of the most oppressive people on planet earth because your pastor happens to be, for reasons beyond his control, by the way, middle-aged, middle-class, masculine, white, heterosexual, cisgendered Christian. And that grieves me to think that that's the way some children are being taught to see somebody like me. How sad it is today that our children and our grandchildren are being taught to claim for themselves an identity based on this kind of stuff. And perhaps even worse than that, our children and grandchildren are being taught to assign an identity to other people based on this kind of stuff. And this is not only sad, but this is frightening. And here's why it's frightening. Because history tells us what happens in a world when we pit people against people. And when we pit groups against groups. That never goes the right way. And we need to know that. We need to be aware of that. In fact, extremist groups and hate groups are only emboldened by this kind of philosophy. They're only emboldened by this kind of worldview. And and here's the attack. This is one of the most important questions in life for every human being to to answer. Who am I? And this is how our children And our grandchildren are being taught to answer that question. And if we're not finding our identities and stuff like that, then we're probably doing what most of us have been doing for a long time, which is finding our identities in other things where we should not be finding our identities. Like finding our identity in the family that I belong to. Well, you know, I just kind of blow my top sometimes because I'm a Frederick. That's what we do, right? Or finding our identity because of what job or title or position we hold. I'm a teacher. I'm a nurse. I'm a plumber. I'm an electrician. That's who I am. Or finding our identity based upon whatever achievements we might have gained in our life. I'm a graduate. I'm a supervisor. I'm a boss. I'm a business owner. Or what groups I belong to. I'm a, I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. Rotate, War Eagle. Whatever your thing may be. Or we may get our identity from the relationships that we have in our lives, right? I'm a husband or I'm a wife or I'm a child. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a grandfather. I'm a widow. I'm a widower. Whatever it may be, I'm a single parent. And some people root their identity in the things that they deal with in their life. Like I'm an addict or I'm bipolar or I'm an abuse survivor. 
And as I said earlier, if I'd walked up to you on Thursday and said, hey, tell me who you are, you probably would have picked from some of those things and said, well, this is who I really am. Now, here is why what you define for yourself as your identity is so important. Because what you embrace as your identity, by and large, is going to determine your destiny. What you embrace as your identity, by and large, is going to determine how, you go, how you're going to live your life and how you interact with other people. If you are convinced that you are oppressed and you will always be oppressed, then that's going to shape how you live your life. It's going to shape how you treat other people. And if you live convinced that your identity is that of oppressor, that's going to impact the way you live your life and how you treat other people. Now, here's the problem with all of that. We weren't created to find our identity in the mirror. We were created to find our identity from our maker. That's so important. We're going to put it on the screen because I want you to write it down. You will never find your true identity when you look in the mirror. Your true identity is found only when you look to your maker, Jesus Christ. It's clear when we look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that God created man and woman. He created them to find their identity vertically from God, from their maker, in relationship with him. But you know what happened in Genesis chapter 3? Sin came into the world. And they no longer found their identity from a perfect God, but they began to frantically search horizontally to piece together some kind of identity from a broken world. And as hard as we may try to piece together an identity from a broken world, all those things are going to fail us. And this is why our world is collapsing around us right now. This is why people are so angry. This is why there's so much hostility right now, because everybody's desperately clinging to the identity that they have claimed for themselves. And when your self-assigned identity collides with my self-assigned identity, now we're in conflict. And that kind of conflict's not new in the world. Cain and Abel had that same sort of conflict, right? Right off the bat. Here's what's different about the year 2022. That conflict between colliding self-identities now is more ferocious and more frequent than it's ever been before. Because we're always on. And we're always listening to and talking to other people through social media or through the 24-7 news cycles. It's constant. And here's the problem, y'all. God's people are right in the middle of that mess. We're right in the mix with all this madness. And I want to tell you today, that's not, what we're, that's not where we're supposed to be. And that's not the way that you and I, as God's people, are supposed to live. Because the biblical truth today is, if you are in Christ, you're no longer merely a white creature or a black creature or a blue-collar creature or a white-collar creature or a gay creature or a straight creature. According to the Bible, in Christ, you're an altogether new creature. However you might have defined yourself before God saved you, now the gospel redefines you. The gospel gives us a new identity. Because of Jesus, we are no longer defined by our outward appearances. We're no longer defined by what we have. We're no longer defined by what we don't have. 
We're no longer defined by what kind of family we might have come from or what kind of struggles we face. We're no longer defined about what our social media following may look like. This is why Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny your, you have to deny yourself. If your sexuality defines you, you can't follow Jesus. If your socioeconomic status defines you, you can't follow Jesus. If your race is what defines you, you can't follow Jesus. If your politics is what defines you, you can't follow Jesus. The Bible is clear. To follow Jesus, you have to take up your cross and deny yourself, including all of your self-given identities, to set all of that aside, to say, this is where I used to find myself. This is where I used to find meaning and value and worth and purpose. All my identity was in that. But now I know that's not me anymore. Jesus has redefined who I am. Now I'm free to deny self and to follow Jesus. But do you know why we resist denying self so ferociously? Because we're really into ourselves. <laughs> We are addicted to self. And you can think that it's cruel of Jesus to demand that you deny yourself and bury your old definitions of your identity, but that's not cruel of Jesus. That's supremely loving. Because as long as we hold on to these false identities of who we are, we're never going to have God's best. We're never going to walk in the fullness of joy that Jesus provides to us through what he did at the cross for us. It is supremely loving on God's part to say, let go of all that. I've got more for you. Deny yourself. I've got better for you. And you know what the best of the better is that we get when we deny self and follow him? We get God. He gives us his self in place of myself. But you can't have him as long as you're clinging to you. Now, let me quickly give you four identities, four identities that humanity is identified by in the Bible. What is the biblical worldview to the answer or the answer to the question, who am I? Now, all of humanity shares these first three identities, but the fourth one, not all of humanity shares this fourth identity. Number one identity is this. We are all creatures created by God, all of us. In fact, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says we're all created by the same God in the same way, in his image. That means that God was here before any of us. That means that this is his world. It all belongs to him. He's creator. We are created. It's all his. It doesn't belong to him. I mean, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him. As I do, I belong to him. So life now is not about me and my plan and my will or my way. I am created by this a creator God to live beneath his leadership, to surrender, to bow before him, my purposes and my plans, because the one who created me is my creator and he's my owner and he's my sustainer. I am not autonomous. I need him. I'm not self-sufficient. I'm dependent on God to live life as he has intended for me to live it. True joy and true fulfillment for my soul can only be found in him as he intends for me to live my life within the boundaries that he has set forth in my life. So we're creatures and we got to know that we're all created by God in his image. Second truth, biblical truth about our identity is this. We're sinners separated from God. You see, there is a deep abiding flaw inside of me. Now, I know you thought I was perfect and then you met me, but 
The fact is there's a deep abiding flaw in all of us, and it affects every part of our lives. And that deep abiding flaw in all of us is called sin. Here's what sin does. Sin distorts my thoughts. It misdirects my desires. It weakens my determination. It undermines my abilities. What this means, church, is this. The greatest problems that I face in my life on a day-to-day basis, the things that mess me up on a day-to-day basis are not the things or the people outside of me. It's sin inside of me. No other human being creates a bigger problem for me than I do for myself and my own sin nature. I am the biggest problem. Somebody asked me recently, what's the biggest challenge you face as a pastor? And I knew immediately I called one of y'all's names. No, I didn't. (laughs) I might have thought of you first, but I knew the truth is, the reality is, the biggest challenge I deal with as a pastor is right here inside of me. Because I've been set free by Jesus from sin's penalty already. That's settled. But he's still in the process of setting me free from its power. I'm not home yet, right? So I'm still struggling with that. So we are all sinners separated from God. We need his help. All my effort, all my education, all my experience, all that is not enough to overcome that power of sin in me. I need God to help me do that. So what am I saying? Our our identity is we are creatures who've been created. We are sinners who have been broken. And third is because of our sin and our separation, we are sufferers. That's why we suffer. That's why Grace Life has four young people in her church that in the last 16 hours have lost a parent or a grandparent as a guardian. You know, we're all suffering in this place today. We don't live in a, bro- in a perfect world. We live in a broken world. God created this world to be perfect, to shine forth as, as a beautiful diamond, right, of who he is. But sin came, Genesis chapter 3, and smashed that into a gazillion pieces. And so you and I live in this broken and this damaged world that doesn't work the way that God intended it to work. And because it doesn't work the way it's supposed to, you and I suffer. We just do. We live in a world where oppression is real. That's because of sin. Racism is real. And that's because of sin. Injustice is real. And that's because of sin. Disease is real. And that's because of sin. Famine is real. Murder is real. All of these things are real, but the problem is not a system. The problem is sin and the power of sin. We see that expressed in lives. We see that expressed in places. We see that expressed in systems. But the source of the problem is what's inside of all of us, which is our sin, which leads to this suffering that we all experience. None of us get out of that. We get hurt when others sin against us. They make assumptions about us, right? They, they uh, draw conclusions, stereotypes about us. They act in discriminatory ways toward us. They do certain things toward us, right? And, and we do all those same things to other people. We receive suffering and Because of sin in us, we oftentimes, sadly, dole out our fair share of suffering. That's that's just right now reality, right? Because we're creatures created, we're sinners that are broken, and we're sufferers who are haunted by suffering in this world. But here's the good news. The fourth identity that we 
have here in the Word of God is that we are sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus. We're spiritually born again. And as I said, all humanity doesn't have this identity. And that's why we're here as God's people, because God has called us to take the beautiful, the good, the true story of the gospel to the whole world so that people find out who they really are, who God has really intended for them to be, so that they know the joy that we find when we deny self and follow Jesus. My identity today is not in the categories that critical race or critical theory presents to me. My identity is in Christ. I've been adopted by God into his family because of what Jesus did through his perfect life, through his substituting death, through his victory over the grave. And he not only forgives my sin, but he welcomes me into his family as his son. And you, if you're in Christ, as his daughter. This is who you are, creature, sinner, sufferer. And if you've trusted Christ, now your identity is that is restored, redeemed, reconciled, son and daughter of God. This is the story This is the story that the gospel's telling. Y'all, listen. There's no story more beautiful than this one. No story more true than this one. No story that is more good than this one. Here's the story. At a tree, we lost our identity. But at another tree, it was given back. That's the story. The good the beautiful, the true story of the gospel. And when you learn in your situations in life to understand who you are from that story, from that story, from one tree to that tree, and that's who I am now because the second Adam, Jesus Christ, came to restore and redeem and to reconcile all things to himself, and I am a son or a daughter of God. That is going to change the way you live. That is going to affect your life in such a beautiful and such a powerful way. And it's taken me this whole sermon to get to my text for the day. Some of you are like, man, he didn't even open the Bible. Well, I want to, but these eight weeks are like one big long sermon, all right? So sometimes we're really a lot of that, and sometimes like today, I'm barely getting to it. But here we go, 2 Peter chapter 1. And I hope you're beginning to understand that what you hold on to is your identity so important because it's going to determine in large part your destiny. It's going to determine how you live your life. It's going to determine how you treat the people around you. You're either going to form a broken identity from broken things and broken ideas in a broken world, or you're going to embrace what Jesus did from that tree to this tree to call you his own, to set you free and to forgive you and to embrace you. Now, Peter in this passage is telling us that the gospel has given us everything that we need to live beautiful, good, amazing lives that are good and beautiful for others and that bring God glory. Now, whatever cycles of oppression are in our world today, and there are cycles of oppression in our world today, here's how we break them. Because when I look at that and I think, man, if that's happening to any image bearer of God, I want to shatter it. Don't you? Don't you? The Bible tells us how. It's not by my power, but by God's power. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 3. Notice this, his divine, see it? Is it on the screen? Because y'all ain't saying nothing. Oh, okay, okay. His divine power 
has granted to us all things that pertain to life. There's nothing in life that his power is not intended to saturate, impact, influence. His power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, through the power of God, you're no longer natural. Your identity has been changed now. You are supernatural because the Holy Spirit of God now lives inside of you. This is who you are now, your true identity, divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world. The world is corrupt. The world hurts and harms and hates and divides, but we're not that anymore. Through God's divine nature, he's pulled us out, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. That old way when we were corrupted, we had these sinful desires to beat others down and to make it to the top, but not anymore. Verse 5, for this reason, because of what God has done for us in Christ, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Don't just stop at faith. Some of your study in James, faith without works is what? It's dead. And God is saying, now children of God, now those that have their true identity brought back because of this tree, now with your faith, bring virtue. And with virtue, knowledge, and knowledge, self-control. And with self-control, steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. Can you hear that right now? Is anybody hearing that besides me right now? Can you hear the cycle of oppressions in our world shattering? Do you hear that? Virtue, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with, what is it? Love. Y'all, it leaves me a little breathless. When I look to verse 3 and I see that word power, divine power, God's power, and I can just draw a line from that word power down to that last word of verse 7 where it says love. This, this love comes from the power of God. Isms don't defeat isms. Love does. Love that comes from the very throne of heaven itself kind of love. And then he says in verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing. And I would ask you, church, today, are these qualities yours? Is this your life? And are they increasing? If so, God says they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind having forgotten, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, God says, if you call yourself a child of God, and let's say you are, but love doesn't mark your life, you have forgotten who you are. You've bought the lie that you're something other than who God says you are. A beautiful young lady at the end of the first hour came up as we're singing and she just embraced me with tears rolling down her face and she said, I'm a child of God, but I needed to be remembered. I need to be reminded today. I've been living in a way that says I have forgotten who I really am. Verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted, blind, 
because you've forgotten that you were cleansed. You forgot who you are. And maybe you came in here today not knowing who you really are. And I'm pointing you today to Jesus. Knowing who you are is a struggle because of what happened at a tree a long time ago. But the answer is found at this tree where Jesus laid his life down to make you his. Or maybe you have forgotten who you really are, like that young lady. Maybe you have bought the lies that you are something else besides that. And the result of that is you're living a life that doesn't reflect who Jesus is. It's not effective for him in this world. It's not a life where self-control and virtue and affection for others and love, love. I wonder why the world looks at the church today and the first thing they think isn't love. because we have forgotten who we are. But if we embrace who we really are, it's gonna change us. It'll change the world around us. I think that college professor and millions like her, I think they have good intentions. But misplaced hope. The hope to change our world is not found in this world. The hope to change this world is found in the one who sits on heaven's throne. If you're a son or a daughter of God through faith in Christ today, I just wanna remind you, don't get sucked in to these arguments and to these lies. The world's trying to tell you you're something that God says you're not. I want you today to know and love the most beautiful story, the most good story. That's not bad grammar. There is no other story that it's filled with more goodness than this story and the most true story. And can I give you a little coaching followers of Jesus? Because we've been discipled by the world and we've been discipled by politics more than we've been discipled by Jesus. We watch how the world and how politicians deal with people who have other ideas. And what they do is they try to turn them into horrible, evil, bad people and squash them. And then my argument wins. That's not the way Jesus has discipled us. We don't fight with the weapons like this war fights with. In fact, we don't have to fight at all. Because we have the most beautiful story of one tree to the other. The most good story and the most true story. And I'm telling you, what the folks in our world are longing for is something that's beautiful, something that's good, and something that's true. And they can't see the beauty or experience the goodness or hear the truth over your yelling at them as you try to win an argument. God has not called us to win arguments. He's called us to win hearts into his kingdom. And before you can live out in such a way what a beautiful and good and true story the gospel is, you first got to believe it. I believe there is no greater beauty. I believe there is no greater goodness. I believe there is no other truth than the truth of the gospel.
because I know where I was and I know who I was. And had my destiny ended at that first tree, I know where I'm headed. But because Jesus came to this tree, now I know who I really am and I know where I'm headed. And I want that power of God that comes through the work of Jesus on the cross to invade my life translated into love from me into this world that we live in. I want to invite you to stand. Let's remember today who we really are because if we will we will disarm all the powers of this world with the power of God operating through love 